I was kind of involved with uh, organizing the demonstrations because the idea with the civil rights movement uh, in nonviolent protests was to fill the jails. So uh, Florida and m was a uh, population of 3,000 students, and everybody knew everybody, and I was, you know, pretty popular, and I had gotten involved politically with the Young Democrats uh, Club. In the fall of 1963, Bernard Kinsey was a junior at Florida A&M University in Tallahassee. He remembers dozens of students would be arrested after every protest. And as one of the protest organizers, it was his job to meet the students when they were released from jail to make sure they were safe and knew their rights. And that's how, one day in September of 1963, he met Shirley Pooler. And uh, I, I never will forget, I saw this pretty young lady, this cute young lady, you know, after, you know, she, she came out of jail. And I, you know, immediately was attracted to her. My name is Shirley Pooler Kinsey. Shirley Rose Pooler Kinsey. <laughs> Shirley Pooler grew up in St. Augustine, Florida, in the 1940s and 50s. She was raised by her grandmother and attended segregated schools. When she graduated from high school, she was the class valedictorian. I remember my uh, superintendent of schools, who was white, and he said to my grandmother that I was so smart, but it was such a shame that I could not go to uh, Florida State University, which was a white college. And that, you know, it was a shame I couldn't go there. And Mama said, well, she didn't want to go there anyway. She wanted to go to Florida A&M, which is where I went. Shirley started her first year at Florida A&M in 1963. And soon after she arrived on campus, she decided she wanted to participate in the civil rights marches that were going on in Tallahassee. Her grandmother hadn't allowed her to attend any back home. There had been marches to... um, integrate the lunch counters and all, and then the other march was to integrate the movie theaters, actually. Shirley remembers going out with a friend to join the march from campus to downtown Tallahassee. At 17, I'll say, you don't really think that you're going to be one of the ones that gets arrested. You know, you're going to march and carry a sign and come back to campus. So when um, the policemen were over there, and and I say this luckily, that there were no water hoses and no... um, dogs and all that kind of stuff, but they were big, burly, white cops with guns and with um, nightsticks. nightsticks. And they would, you know, pat their nightsticks in the hand, holding it in the hand. So you were afraid. We were afraid. And again, at 17, it's like, oh, gosh, you know what's about to happen. And so we were arrested. So that in itself was really scary, because now you, by the way, we had to dress nicely to be able to participate in the protest. Yeah, in this cute dress <laughs> to go to jail. <laughs> I had this cute outfit on uh, that my sister had sent me, not for protest in, but for school. <laughs> um, and uh, we had to keep the same clothes on for three days. Shirley says she was held with around 50 other women from Florida A&M. Bernard and other students who hadn't been arrested collected toothbrushes, blankets, and towels to send to the students in jail. When Shirley and her fellow students were released three days later, Bernard was there to meet them. He says he'll never forget seeing Shirley that first time. He wanted to meet her, so he wrote a note to one of her friends. And she told me about this guy with these green eyes. <laughs> and um, come to find out, he was asking her about me. He wanted to talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So she immediately shared with him, though, that I was a bookworm, that I didn't go to parties off campus, I didn't go to anything off campus, so if he wanted to date me, he had, right, to, no touch. <laughs> he had to take me to the dances on campus or to movies on campus or meet me at the library because I was not going anywhere else. <laughs> What what was your first, tell me about your first date. Well, I can tell you, you know, because Tallahassee was segregated, the uh, 40&M, they would uh, have movies on campus. Friday night. Friday night. night. Friday so, night. So if you wanted to see a movie, you saw it on campus. In, so, in, 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 it was called Lee Hall. Yeah, Lee Hall. Auditorium. You know, it, so it was a very nice setting, and you go in. And I remember the, uh, Shirley finally accepted the, the date, so we went. You know, to the movie, and uh, I think the movie name was 40 Pounds of Trouble with Tony Curtis. Tony Curtis and Suzanne Pritchett. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. So that was our first date. Uh, you, 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 and it was a date, yeah. uh, even though we were <laughs> only maybe 100 feet from our dog. <laughs> you know. He picked me up. Yeah, so, you know, you know, having a chaperone and all that kind of stuff, you know. But it was a good start. It was a good start. I wrote my mom and told her I thought I found, you know, someone I really, really liked a lot. And, um, you know, that was, the, you know, kind of the beginning of us, really. I can remember going to dances on Saturday night sometime together and library uh, dates. Um, he'd come meet me in the library and get me back to dorm before curfew. Right. And... Um, Christmas, I think he, when I got back to school after Christmas, he bought me a gift. And I just, at first I was like, why is he getting me this present? I didn't get him anything. And his mother told me the story years later that she allowed him to buy this little uh, necklace uh, on her account at her jeweler's. Right. And so that, uh, and that's, I guess that's when he told her he had, he had met me and thought he was in love. Yeah. And Shirley, did you, obviously you could tell that he was very interested in you. When did you realize that this this man was probably someone that you, you thought you might like to spend your life with? Well, it, it, I'll say it took a little while. <laughs> we, we dated. I was, I was very studious, as I said. Uh, however, um, I, I, my scholarship was a scholarship in pharmacy, which was a five-year course. And um, I'd have to go to, to the lab a lot of times, and so he would start go, going to the lab with me and, and spending a lot of his time with me instead of with his friends or our band members or whatever. And um, I wound up changing my major, though, because I got a D in qualitative analysis, and it was a class that he, you had had that, right? Yeah, I got so a D in math. <laughs> and so he said, you know, I'll go with you to the lab, and I can help you with your lab experiments and stuff and all, and of course... We wouldn't get much lab work done. <laughs> Shirley remembers Bernard would bring her dinner on Sunday evenings, when her dorm curfew was earlier than usual. She remembers coming back to campus after school holidays and seeing Bernard standing in front of her dormitory, just waiting for her. Uh, and some of my friends, I remember them saying, we knew that you guys were in love, but he was out there standing there waiting for you when you got here. <laughs> Shirley and Bernard talked about what kind of lives they wanted to live together. They spent summers apart, finding jobs and trying to save up as much as they could. In the summer of 1965, Bernard went to Washington, D.C. Because being black in the South, there was no jobs. Uh, so you literally had to go north to, to work. And so I went to D.C. 
and uh, worked. I worked as a lifeguard. I also worked at the uh, post office, the main post office. And it turned out to be a heck of a job because I worked 12 and a half hours a day, six days a week. And I would work every overtime. And I went there purposely to earn enough money to be able to to buy uh, Shirley's ring. So I ended up, when we went back to Tallahassee, I bought both the ring, uh, the engagement ring and the, and the wedding ring. And I gave them both up. <laughs> I told you, hold on to it. <laughs> I'm Phoebe Judge. And this is love. So I said, you're not supposed to give me both of these. I said, well, you can, you can hold on to Yeah, you know. We had a very, very small wedding. I had been uh, Miss Junior the year before, and so I had this white carnation gown, and one of my sorority sisters made a lace vest to go over this carnation gown. That was my wedding gown. Yeah. Uh, my sorority sisters chipped in and bought my... Uh, veil and, and gloves and the whole bit and all that stuff. And it was just a really nice, nice, nice wedding. had a great wedding. had a great wedding. They were married on February 11th, 1967. That spring, they graduated together from Florida A&M. Bernard already had a job lined up in Los Angeles, a city Shirley had never been to. They'd both lived in Florida their entire lives, and moving all the way across the country meant leaving practically all their family and friends behind. Shirley says at first, Los Angeles felt like a foreign country. I remember thinking in the mountains and the widest streets I'd ever seen in my life, biggest city I'd been in was Miami. <laughs> and it was a big city. Really unbelievable, frankly. And when I got here, I wasn't sure how this was going to work. And I remember dresses were very, very short. And I'm, I, I'm uh, well, I used to be a seamstress in a sense and make my own clothes. And uh, I remember thinking, Lord, my dresses, my skirts are not short enough. <laughs> what am I going to do? Bernard started his job as a sales representative with Humble Oil Company, and Shirley got a job as a teacher. They decided they would do their best to live on just one paycheck. Everything Shirley earned, they'd save. Any bonuses Bernard got, they'd save. The first apartment was eighty-seven fifty a month. We got used furniture, bought a used $250 car. Right. When everybody else was going out buying a new car, we were driving this old, beat-up 1961 Dodge Lancer. It didn't have any heat or air conditioning. No heat, no air conditioning, no nothing. But it didn't cost but $250. And we've never been, you know, keeping up with the Joneses kind of people. I mean, we really just, we're just not interested in what other people think about us, uh, you know, what we tell people, instead of, you know, following the Joneses, we became the Joneses. You know, we, we did it. the Kinsey's. Yeah, well, we became the Kinsey's, but we never followed anybody. We took our own road to this, to our lives. Bernard and Shirley both agreed that while they didn't want to spend a lot of money on new cars or fancy clothes, they did want to see the world. They started small, going on road trips to national parks in California. Then, in 1970... They took their first trip out of the country, to Mexico. Soon after that, they visited Canada. They traveled as much as possible. And almost a decade after they moved to Los Angeles, they started planning a trip to see South America. And the idea was that, uh, that we were going to get pregnant on that trip. <laughs> April of 1976. Six, yeah. And went to uh, Brazil, to Argentina, to... Colombia, Chile. Colombia, Chile. Oh, uh, Peru. Peru. 
and just you know did Machu Picchu, we did the whole thing. beaches, all you know everything. Went to Iguazu Falls, all that stuff, and um, Paraguay, yeah. did not get pregnant then though. Not on that trip. We anyway. practiced a lot, but we didn't. <laughs> and so came back home, and at some point during that summer, uh, I did get pregnant. Yeah. In March of 1977, their son, Khalil, was born. When Khalil was born, we started thinking and saying, you know what, we, we, we don't know a lot about our, um, our history, really, about our culture. Uh, my grandmother was born in 1887, and so when I look back at it, I say, well, Darn, that meant her, her parents, her parents were born in slavery and were had been some probably enslaved, and so. But that wasn't anything that we talked about. Mama died in 1975, so 77 when Khalil was born, it was like I don't have you know where am I going to go find this information? Who can we talk to? And that kind of started us on a quest. We'd been collecting, I'll say, stuff already because wherever we traveled we'd always get something to bring back to remind us of our of our travels to lots and lots of photographs and then in the traveling we realized that we were learning about other cultures other cultures and didn't know enough about our very own 78 yeah. i can remember directly and 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 um, definitely making something happen and that was to buy a painting by an african-american painter i think that was our first real painting, don't you think, honey? Yeah. Ernie Barnes? Yeah. And um, his paintings always reminded us of growing up in the South, basically. Yeah. Ernie Barnes was born in Durham, North Carolina in 1938. He played football in the NFL until the mid-1960s when he was injured and focused on his art full-time. His most famous painting is called The Sugar Shack, and it's on the cover of Marvin Gaye's 1976 album, I want you. Bernard and Shirley bought a print of one of his paintings. That particular a particular painting called High Aspirations um, was of a young black boy trying to make a basket in the backyard. He was elevated, with long limbs, and Bernard decided he was, Bernard at that time was branch manager of Xerox in Oakland, California, and he decided that instead of giving his top sales reps a plaque with their name and their stats, he would get with Ernie and ask if he could get prints of high aspirations and frame it and give that to them with their stats and their name on it. And that's what he did. And we look back on it now and we say, well, darn, we were trying to <laughs> explain to people our, uh, about our culture and stuff back then, not knowing that's what we were doing. But that was what we did. Bernard and Shirley started traveling to black art festivals all over the country. They sought out and befriended black artists they admired, when Khalil was old enough, they started bringing him along. Shirley and Bernard remember talking about the fact that Khalil was in a school with mostly white kids. And they remember when Khalil started noticing that what he knew about his family was very different from what his white classmates knew about their families. And, and it's the way that Khalil used to always say it. If I, if, I, if I talk to one of my white friends, and I know a lot about his history and his background and a lot of good stuff, but all he knows about my history and my background is slavery and negativity and bad things, then we can't have an eye-level conversation. There's always something in the way, because you don't really know me. I know more about you than you know about me. You know, I do remember in, in elementary school and, and, and middle school particularly, uh, my parents impressing upon me and my mom uh, 
specifically always, you know, if it was a report, any type of report, it 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 it, it was highly stressed that I did it on somebody that was black. Khalil Kinsey. And they were, were and and I would ask at the time, you know, well, why am I always why do I always, you know, why am I always doing something on black people? And I was just asking really just inquisitively. And my mom, I remember her saying, you know, because you're learning and you're teaching your, your class as well, and you're probably teaching your teachers. Bernard and Shirley made a plan. They wanted their son to understand where he came from and where his ancestors came from. Bernard says they decided to be detectives, uncovering their own history. What really hit, hit, hit home for me was I got a document from a business partner in Florida uh, of an African-American uh, young man, 18 years old, being sold into slavery for $500 in Alabama. And I never will forget how uh, powerful that particular document, what it did to me, To I mean, it shook me to my core when I opened the FedEx and I picked up this letter and I'm here I'm holding somebody in, in my hands. And we began to find that there were places you could buy this stuff, and there were people that collected this stuff. And we began doing that, and I mean, the next thing you know, I had gotten hooked. Support for This Is Love comes from Shopify. If you've ever had a dream of starting your own business, Shopify can be a great place to start. Shopify is an online platform that lets you sell things online and in person and makes it incredibly easy to accept all kinds of different payment methods, figure out how to charge taxes, how to charge shipping, and get detailed, top-down views on how your sales are going. Some of your favorite brands already rely on Shopify to power their online shops, like Rothy's, Brooklyn, and Allbirds. But you don't need to be well-established to use Shopify. They'll help you at every stage of your business and have tools to help people who are just starting out, like their AI-powered tool, Shopify Magic, or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create and analyze campaigns. Shopify grows with your business, no matter how far or big you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash thisislove, all lowercase, Go to shopify.com slash thisislove now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash thisislove. Bernard and Shirley Kinsey began collecting historical documents, artifacts, art, amassing hundreds of pieces. I said we were going to start looking at our, our collective ancestry, all of these wonderful people who did many things that nobody knows about. Well, I'll give you one of Phyllis Wheatley. In 1773, Phyllis Wheatley became the first black person to publish a book of poetry in the United States. Bernard and Shirley own a first edition of the book called Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral. And they published this book September 1st, 1773. And it becomes so popular, they say that and in, in, she was as popular as George Washington was during that period. And 99% of people in this country, black or white, have never heard of her. She died at 32 
in an unmarked grave in Boston, Massachusetts. That's what we're trying to correct. You follow me? I mean, you can't you can't do the, all of that and die anonymously. That's just, and that's what happens with the African American story of achievement and accomplishment. We we make the comment: it's like walking into a graveyard, and there are no headstones, and you know everybody there had a life and made a difference. I mean, we could go on and on and on about people that. Um, you know, just did so much and got so little, you know, in uh, in return. Tell me, if we can for a minute, talk about the myth of absence and, and speaking about African-American art and history. The myth of absence really is is my, I mean, one of my favorite concepts in terms of encompassing and sharing, you know, the, the kind of core principles that we are striving to to dispel or to work towards and and so the myth of absence is a phrase coined by Dr. Lerone Bennett he he wrote a book called Before the Mayflower and the concept is that African Americans are invisibly present in the telling of the American story and the myth of absence is at work in every aspect of American life when it comes to the, the telling of the of African-American contribution, participation and achievement uh, in in building the this, you know, this United States uh, in all aspects, you know, when it comes to not only the, the manual aspects of, of, of labor and, and building and, and, and those types of things, but also from the inventing side and then also the political process and and the way that so much of our our country is shaped is all based you know in or around race in so many regards and also it's it it's flourished because of you know african american work uh and brains and hearts and souls and we don't that's left out of our history books so what happens is our kids uh you know black kids do not have us to have a, a full sense of self they're 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 taught that their story in America is only pain and struggle, and that's not just for Black folks. That 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 occurs in in other groups as well. As far as the the story and the sharing of of the contributions of Americans and and immigrant Americans, and so what we're trying to do is dispel the myth of absence by placing, you know, these incredible people in the narrative and in the story. And and the only way to do that is through primary source factual documents and, and, and information, which, you know, my parents have been so diligently collecting for all of this time. I'm sitting here looking at uh, a piece by Ed Dwight, who um, is an African-American sculptor. He's 80, what are we, I think he's 89 now, lives in Denver. And uh, this is, astronaut yeah, in the early, this is in the early 80s or something, I'm gonna say, we were in Hawaii and went into this gallery at the Hyatt Hotel and saw this beautiful sculpture, bronze sculpture of uh, Charlie, Charlie Parker, was it? And it was, it was, it was a, um, all you saw was kind of a partial face with a full saxophone and fingers hovering above the keys on the saxophone. I'd never seen anything like it before. It's a lot of negative space with it. That's what he does. And uh, went in and asked the curator in the, in the, um, art gallery who was that by and when she told us it was Ed Dwight African American 
and that he uh, lived in Denver and that he had been the first astronaut trainee, black astronaut trainee under Kennedy when Kennedy was in office. And we both looked at each other and said, what? Why don't we know about him? Two things. One, him being the first black astronaut trainee, and then also that he did such beautiful sculpture. And we knew nothing about him. Shirley got Ed Dwight's address from the art gallery and sent him a letter. They wrote letters back and forth. And eventually, Shirley and Bernard invited him to Los Angeles so they could host an art show for him. Over the years, they continued to build their collection. They have the country's earliest known black marriage record from 1598, a copy of the Supreme Court's decision in the Dred Scott case, and letters between Malcolm X and Alex Haley. They have quilts made by Bisa Butler, a bronze bust of Frederick Douglass by Tina Allen, paintings by Norman Lewis, Alma Thomas, and Huey Lee Smith, and letters from Matthew Henson, one of the first men to reach the North Pole. In 1994, Bernard and Shirley started to remodel their house with their collection in mind. They wanted it to be the central focus of their home. Word spread about the collection they were building, and in 2005, the Los Angeles Times published a feature on the Kinsey's home and their art. And then, Bernard and Shirley got a phone call from the California African American Museum. And they wanted to know if we would participate in a program they'd started called In the Hands of African American Collectors. Bernard and Shirley agreed to loan the museum about 200 pieces, including sculptures by Ed Dwight. And then the museum called and said, we've got all kinds of museums interested in your, in your uh, show. show. What do you think about letting it travel? So we said yes, and then it kept going. And then all of a sudden, a museum from West Palm Beach, a white museum that Bernard could not go into when he was growing up there, called. And they had um, the Norton Museum, well-known museum right there in downtown uh, West Palm Beach. But what, what was so ironic with it being in West Palm Beach is that black people still, you know, to, to that time, didn't really uh, visit the museum that much. They, they didn't, didn't feel, feel well. welcome. And um, so we had to do programming to make sure that all the organizations, the churches, the schools, the, everybody was invited. The collection has been all over the country, including the Smithsonian and the Mary Brogan Museum of Art and Science in Tallahassee. The one in Tallahassee was right down the street from where I was arrested. Yeah, which was really ironic. Yeah. Another place we couldn't have gone in. Right. Well, talk about the, the Kinsey collection. It, it began when you were just a baby. At what point in your life were you kind of old enough to understand that this collection, in many ways, was made for you? I, I don't think I grasped the wholeness of it uh, until my late 20s. Um, I think that it took some time for me to be able to, you know, come back and see the truths in a lot of what, you know, my parents were trying to impart to me. Um, So when I got back from school in the early 2000s, 
I remember just going deeper and deeper. Every time I would come home, there would be these new objects that my parents were sharing with me. And, and I always was fascinated that I didn't realize at the time, you know, wow, you, how can you own something like this? You know, like a piece of history in this way that's, you know, the actual document or manuscript or letter or whatever it may be. My father was reading a book called Slavery by Another Name. And there's this letter that, that my father discovered while reading the book from uh, a Carrie, her name's Carrie Kinsey. And it's from, it's 1903 and it's to President Roosevelt. And the, the, the girl is largely illiterate, but she has, she doesn't know any, has no other recourse than to try to get in touch with the President of the United States to, to try to locate her brother who was kidnapped, she said was kidnapped by the sheriff in, in Bainbridge, Georgia. And uh, 1903, my father says he was reading the book in 2008, and he came across this letter, and he said he instantly, you know, because of, of course, the name, but also the 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 location, Georgia, uh, he said this has to be a relative. And my mother and father were able to go to the National Archives and retrieve the letter, and we did, you know, did some some work on it, and it turned out to be my my grandfather's first cousin. And this is a direct part of our family history that is talking about a sheriff kidnapping but would also be my cousin uh, and put into the chain gang system for, for uh, uh, something that wasn't even, a, uh, you know, a crime for walking, you know, was, was picked up for walking on the railroad tracks and never to be seen again, most likely. And, and so those types of things, you know, I, I get chills just even talking about it now because it's not only connected to my family directly, but it's connected to my existence. In 2009, Bernard, Shirley, and Khalil published a book about their collection. In the foreword, author Douglas Blackman writes, There are few forces in America that more powerfully demonstrate how much can be achieved in our country and has been achieved by African Americans than Bernard and Shirley Kinsey and their extraordinary collection. Khalil is now the general manager and curator of the Kinsey Collection. Bernard and Shirley say it doesn't get much better than working with their son on a project that was essentially created for him. He's the best thing about the two of them. Yeah, right? yeah we, we say it's the best thing Shirley and I have done is our son because he's a blend of both of us in, in the best way, you know. Uh, so, you know, we, we're real and, proud. And, 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 the, and the biggest thing, we're very proud and, and, and happy that that he wanted to get on board with us with the collection. That's yeah, he wanted to do this. He, we didn't, you know, because you can't force these kids to do nothing they don't want to do. What is the secret to being good to each other? Hmm, secret, secret, secret. Well, it helps to have a good partner that's good. I, I, always, say, I always say it's me. <laughs> yeah, she always says me. <laughs> yeah, and there's some truth to that. And, you know, another thing we say to each other, if you leave me, I'm going, I'm with, going you. with you. <laughs> you know, so we've, we've always, I, I think a lot of it is being, um, you know, being committed to the future together. And one thing I love about Shirley today, we always see the future the same. And in other words, we're always looking toward the future with the same expectations, the same goals. And I tell everybody that if you if you only have to make one decision in life, you get the marriage part right, a lot of this other stuff will work itself out. So we, you know, I feel we've been very fortunate that we, we landed, you know, together 
And uh, we created, uh, you know, uh, an environment where we both can thrive and grow and love and, and learn and, and do well. On February 11th, 2021, Shirley and Bernard Kinsey will celebrate their 54th wedding anniversary. This is Love is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Our producers are Susanna Robertson and Aaron Wade. Audio mix by Johnny Vince Evans, Michael Raphael, and Rob Byers of Final Final V2. Our illustrator is Julian Alexander. This is Love is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Radio Tokyo.